Welcome to Mix Understood, where we explore identity, the meaning of the word race, and talk about the multicultural and multiracial experience with stories from our own lives. I'm Amy McGarrett-Taub. And I'm Hana Lee Sakakibara. And in today's episode, we're talking to biological anthropologist Dr. Stephanie Meredith. It's really, really clear at this point that the way in which we break up people into racial categories doesn't actually describe anything about the underlying biological variation that we see across people. And experiencing racism basically does things like chronically activate your sort of stress physiology. We always laugh back home, like what would have happened if they had quote unquote fixed my eyes. <laughs> they might have gotten rid of your epicanthic fold. Exactly. Yes. And then you'd have to get it back again. I'd have to get it back again. <laughs> we learned so much from this episode and we are so excited to share it with you. Yes, but before we dive in, it's just important for us to say we're here to offer up stories, ideas, various theories for you to consider and decide for yourself in light of your own knowledge and experience. We hope to explore, learn, and grow together with you. We're not professing to have the answers. Our aim is just to start conversations around these important topics. So Stephanie is a biological anthropologist. She has talked all over the place, from Harvard University to Cal Poly Pomona to West LA College and is currently teaching at College of the Canyons. She did doctoral work in the School of Human Evolution and Social Change at Arizona State University. Stephanie is also a primatologist who studies capuchin monkeys in Argentina in the summers, and you've studied other species in other places, right? Yeah, I have. Well, I did my dissertation research on ring-tailed lemurs in Madagascar. I also studied brown lemurs in Madagascar, and I have worked on uh, baboons in Ethiopia for like a hot minute. I've also chased spider monkeys and lost them a lot in Costa Rica because (laughs) those guys are fast. Wow. I know. Amazing. And she's my friend, guys. She's also a fabulous cook. I I have eaten many good meals in her house. Um, She's a nature photographer, an avid hiker. And guess what? She just hiked the entire Grand Canyon in 14 hours. Oh, my God. Stephanie is also the reason we are doing this episode today. So I was at Stephanie's house for dinner the other night, and I was passionately telling her about our new podcast and how it explores what it's like to be a mixed-race person and all that. And then Stephanie was like, whoa, 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 wait a second. What what did you say to me, (laughs) Over to you, Stephanie. Uh, I think I probably said something like, well, before you get too far into that... It might be important to talk about race as a social construct. And then I was silent, and I was like, uh, what do you mean, Stephanie? <laughs> <laughs> well, we made it up. I think I said we made it up. People made it up. Tell me more. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't describe the biological reality that people think it describes. So we spent a good amount of time that evening talking about this, and I learned a lot. Yeah, you did. And then you called me and you were like, okay, Amy, we have to have Stephanie on our podcast and talk about race as a social construct. 
I now know that it's taught in schools and colleges across the U.S., but this was not a topic that I ever discussed with my friends or family growing up. You know, in Israel, the only time the topic was sort of addressed was when referring to the Holocaust. And I remember in second grade learning about how the Nazis claimed there was an Aryan race and that others were inferior races, primarily the Jews. But there was never a deeper exploration into racial studies. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, it definitely wasn't something that we were taught at my school or even talked about amongst my friends and family. And um, I do know for a fact that some people in my close circles aren't aware of this. And so it feels even more important to learn and share about this. We've spent the last couple of weeks trying to watch documentaries, read books. Obviously, this is a huge topic and we're only able to really scratch the surface today. We are so unbelievably lucky to have Stephanie with us today and down the road, we definitely hope to take an even deeper dive into what all of this means. Well, let's start us off with a quote by Kofi Annan. We may have different religions, different languages, different colored skin, but we all belong to one human race. So, Stephanie, you teach a class on this, right? Yeah. I'm just going to hand over to you. I think every, I think everybody teaches this in uh, Introduction to Biological Anthropology, which is sometimes also called Introduction to Physical Anthropology. So it's the basic first class that you would take in biological anthropology. And this is this is going to be a topic in that class, no matter where it's taught, I would think, across the states, because it's one of the really important things about what we understand about the biology of humans, which is that race does not describe the biological variation that we see across populations of humans. But that has changed over the years. So for many years, they were saying something else. Mm. Yes. That's true. So in the in the 17 and 1800s, um, some scientists, British scientists and American scientists sort of came up with this idea that you could break up people into these separate groups. And um, importantly, that those separate groups of humans had different characteristics. So if you could break people up into white people and black people and Asian people and you could ascribe differences to those groups of people, um, that gave people a lot of justification for treating certain groups of people well and other groups of people less well. Um, even in the early days, though, there were scientists who were disagreeing with that interpretation of human biological variation. And the I, I think that the field of biological anthropology has has grappled with that quite a bit. But it's really, really clear at this point that the way in which we break up people into racial categories doesn't actually describe anything about the underlying biological variation that we see across people. There's a lot of biological vari variation across people, but it doesn't correspond to the categories that we sort of arbitrarily impose on the biological variation that exists. So we mainly think about skin color when we are deciding that someone belongs to race X or race Y, but other aspects of biological variation don't co-vary with skin color. Like skin color varies across human populations in relation to the amount of sun exposure those populations have historically experienced, but it doesn't co-vary with things like 
adaptations that you genetic adaptations that you have to malaria or genetic adaptations that you have to being able to drink milk which some populations have and some populations don't so the sort of pattern of variation that we see in humans doesn't correspond to those big chunks of people that we that we put people in wow so there's so much more to it than these arbitrary racial categories when was it that we officially realized that there was no biological basis to it so I'm actually not a very good historian. I don't really, I don't, I can't really recount for you the sort of history of, yeah. of thought about race. There definitely are people who, who write about that uh, compellingly. Uh, I'm just a poor student of history, unfortunately. <laughs> like it's not, it's not a thing that I, um, that I tend to do a lot of reading in. Uh, but we, in biological anthropology, we have certainly known this for, for quite some time. Uh, I don't ever remember as an early student of biological anthropology knowing anything else but this. And, mm. you know, I was a college student in the, in the 90s. So, so certainly by then, um, and, and sociology too, uh, biological anthropology and sociology were, were certainly convinced that race was a social construct, that we made it up, people made it up, and then ascribed a lot of other important meaning to it where, where none really exists. I guess there, there's always been a gap between what you're saying, like these different biological anthropologists and lawmakers, mm. you know. Um, so recommended to me by Stephanie and her wife, Christy, is this book called Fatal Invention by Dorothy Roberts. And this book is incredible. I'm just at the beginning of it, and I've already learned so much. Um, just a little bit about who Dorothy Roberts is, um, because I'm going to be quoting her quite a bit in this episode. Um, she's an American sociologist, law professor, and sh social justice advocate. She's an, aw an award-winning author and expert on the interplay of gender, race, and class and legal issues concerning reproduction, bioethics, and child welfare. Her work has been supported by the American Council of Learned Societies, National Science Foundation, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Harvard Program on Ethics and the Professions, and Stanford Center for the Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. Um, okay, this is just one little quote, a little fun fact. South Carolina did not overturn its ban on interracial marriage until 1998. And even then, 38% of voters opposed the referendum. Hmm. 1998. Oh so here you are in the 90s, a student learning about this, but talk about the gap between the reality you're in and the laws. In certain states. Like it's illegal for people from, quote unquote, different races to be married. 1998. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Well, I think that's, I think that's, often true that that conceptions about things in academia are don't trickle out to the public and they certainly don't trickle out to politicians who have vested interests that are not scientific in the status quo that can't be justified by science yeah i mean just in addition to that i just think i don't know if it's a generational thing but in my personal life i think maybe a lot of older people that I know don't necessarily know this, you know, that race isn't based on biological fact. Yeah, I've been talking to people about it and I've been getting a lot of raised eyebrows and <laughs> kind of looks like, 
uh, do you know what you're talking about? And honestly, I don't really know that much because I am new to this. So I'm still learning how to talk about it. And I'm trying to educate myself. And, and just so just to give an example, and please tell me if I'm if I'm wrong. So basically, if you did my if you looked at my genetic DNA with another half Indian, half white girl and another, say, someone who'd be um, who would fall into the category of being black, quote unquote, I could have more in common with the black girl, right, than I would maybe with the other girl who has the same ethnicity as me. You might. There are specific things that geneticists can can identify in populations that seem to distinguish populations from each other, but they are really, really few and far between. Mm-hmm. And in general, we are all so closely related. There's no sort of meaningful genetic distinction yeah. among any of the so-called races. Okay. In particular, um, it's important to realize that among Africans, among populations that have lived in Africa for a very long time, they have a lot of genetic diversity because that's where modern humans first evolved. Yeah. So those populations are are sort of the oldest, like they have the longest history and they've had the longest amount of time to accrue genetic diversity. And all of the populations that are outside of Africa are sort of recent populations compared to like the African continent. And they don't have as much genetic diversity as the African continent because they left the African continent at some time in the past and they didn't take all of the genetic diversity of Africa with them in smaller groups. So mostly what what describes the pattern of genetic diversity that we see in humans is that if you take Europeans, you can basically put them inside the bucket of genetic diversity that we see in Africa. And they're sort of they represent sort of a small part of the genetic bucket of diversity mm-hmm. that we see in Africans. And the same is true for Asians. You can put them inside the, the bucket of genetic diversity that we see in Africa. Okay. Hence the, what is it, 99.9% the same? Yeah. We're very much the same. Mm-hmm. We're really actually uh, really genetically similar as uh, members of a species. Yeah. There are many, many different species in the world who have a lot more genetic diversity than we do. Which is really because we're really recent. We're a really young species. Uh, We've both been watching the PBS documentary series called Race, The Power of an Illusion, which you can get on Vimeo if anyone's interested. Um, And they talk about the fact that... um, Uh, So it says, there's a quote from there. In fact, genetically, we are among the most similar of all species. Fruit flies have 10 times more difference. Any two fruit flies may be as different genetically from each other as a human is from a chimpanzee. That seems right. I'm not not an expert in in fruit flies by any means. But one of the things we know about chimpanzees is there there are sort of four different, we call them subspecies of chimpanzees. And to you, they look the same. Like, there's no way that either of you could recognize a chimpanzee from one, one subspecies versus the other subspecies. But we know that those different subspecies of chimpanzees are much, much, much more genetically distinct from each other than any populations of humans anywhere on the planet. Wow. But they look the same. They look identical to us. So we're really, really good as humans at pinpointing tiny, tiny differences among 
humans, because that's what we look at all day. We just look at humans all the time. We've looked at humans since we were born. So we're very, very good at, at identifying differences. But those differences are really only on the surface, and they Uh don't reflect any other things about your underlying genetic makeup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really is skin deep. Yeah. Yeah. They're so, so minute on on the larger scale of life. It's, it's, I want to just read also um, a little section from uh, Fatal Invention. The Human Genome Project, which mapped the entire human genetic code, proved that race could not be identified in our genes. On June 26, 2000, when President Bill Clinton unveiled the draft genomic sequence, he famously declared that human beings, regardless of race, are 99.9% the same. Contrary to popular misconception, we are not naturally divided into genetically identifiable racial groups. Biologically, there is only one human race— Race applied to human beings is a political division. It is a system of governing people that classifies them into social hierarchy based on invented biological demarcations. So basically what we've talked about so far, I'm going to summarize it into there is no biological basis to race, but we live in a racialized society. So having like multiple races in these categories is a social and historical and political concept, but not a biological one. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's most of that is definitely correct. I, I think it's a little bit confusing. This topic is a little bit confusing because there is we make these groups based on some biological features that we deem relevant, right? So to say that there's no biological um, underpinning of race confuses people because they're like, well, what are you talking about? Like that person has dark skin and that person has light skin. But the way I think about it um, is that we could do the same thing if we wanted to with height. We could take humans and we could say, you know what? There are three kinds of humans. There are tall humans, there are medium humans, and there are short humans. Mm -hmm. And we all just have to be in one or the other of those categories. But everybody knows intuitively that that characteristic height is distributed in a continuous way across people and that there are people in between that it's really hard to figure out where where they belong. And everybody also knows intuitively that not all tall people are more closely related to each other than they are to short people. And that not all tall people are smarter than short people. And that not all tall people are able to drink milk and short people can't. Like everybody understands that height is a biological characteristic, but it is not one that reflects all kinds of other biological characteristics in a reliable way. And what we do with race is that we take one or two, maybe three characteristics that are actually biological. Skin. Skin. Eyes. Yeah. Hair color. Sometimes hair hair texture. texture, Yeah. Things like that. And we sort of lump them together. By the way, those three characteristics actually don't co-vary between themselves all that reliably. But we take those three and we say, all right, we're going to divide you up according, according to these groups. Wait, can can we go back? What do you mean when you say that? Oh, well, if you actually, you know, go around measuring people's eyes and their hair texture, you find that the correspondence between eye shape and skin color is not as high as you think it is. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So, like, not all Asian people have what's called an epicanthic fold, which is the thing that, that you have at the inside corner of your eye where your eyelid goes under underneath, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not all Asian people have that. Um, is this what some Asian people, they do surgery to get this fold? I don't know. You heard of this? I have not. It's a thing. Oh. Yeah. yeah. They, they do it to get it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Are there some people who do that surgery to get rid of it? I don't know about get rid of it, but I've heard of Asian people that do surgery to get the fold. Oh. No, I, I, I'm not, not really. I don't have my finger on the pulse of... <laughs> plastic surgery? <laughs> plastic surgery culture. <laughs> but there, there are like known populations of Asians that, that don't have this. Like Apparently, I've been told that, that indigenous Taiwanese don't have one. Mm. So there's, uh, there are issues with those characteristics. People just sort of think that they co-vary in really tight ways, but they don't actually co-vary as tightly as people think that they do. But people don't really care. They're like, it's good enough. It's close enough. We, we're going to put you in the in the black category, mm-hmm. regardless of what your hair looks like. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to put you in the South Asian category, regardless of how dark your skin is. Because there are plenty of people on the Indian, Indian subcontinent whose skin is much darker than many people on the African continent. Oh, yeah. And people with, the, with really pale skin as well. Mm-hmm. So we just sort of like, you know, skip over the part that there's a lot of mess in these categories. People don't really fit into them. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that you were talking to me about earlier was that the census categories of race have changed over time. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they have. And that means they weren't good categories to describe the variation that they are attempting to describe in the first place. If they can change they didn't do a good job mm-hmm. at categorizing even the variation that they intended to describe. Yes. On that note, let me read another quote from um, Fatal Invention. The very first U.S. census began on August 2nd, 1790. Census takers in 1790 counted the number of persons in each household according to the following categories. So these were the initial categories. Free white males, 16 or older. Free white males, under 16, free white females, all other free persons, and slaves. Since then, every U.S. census census has sorted people by race, but the racial groupings have changed 24 times over in the last 200 years. So I'll just read a little bit out from the 1930s census. Negroes. A person of mixed white and Negro blood should be returned as a Negro, no matter how, many, how small the percentage of Negro blood. Both black and mulatto persons are to be returned as Negroes without distinction. A person of mixed Indian and Negro blood should be returned as Negro unless the Indian blood predominates and the status as an Indian is generally accepted in the community. Indians. A person of mixed white and Indian blood should be returned as Indian, except where the percentage of Indian blood is very small, or where he is regarded as a white person by those in the community where he lives. I think basically, yeah, I mean, it's just so confusing, (laughs) and it's determined by what people in your village might think you are as well. Yes, how random is that? So, we'll decide if... You can be Indian or you can be white depending on how people perceive you. Mm. If people think that you're more white than Indian, then, you, then you'll 
be um, categorized as as white. I mean, that but is not a, if, but not if you're if you're black. Yeah, black. Yeah. They don't have they didn't have any options back mm-hmm. then. <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, the categories but, don't work. They don't no. work, and they they keep changing. Um, fast forward to 2010. This is again from Fatal Invention. The 2010 census provides 15 racial categories to choose from, as well as spaces to write in a racial identity not listed on the form. Curiously, the census contains one category called white, one called black, African American or Negro, one called American Indian or Alaska Native, and seven Asian categories, Asian Indian, Chinese, Filipino, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, and other Asian Similarly, the form includes four choices for Pacific Islanders, Native Hawaiian, Guamanian, or Chamorro, Samoan, and other Pacific Islander. This classification scheme suggests that there is one white race, one black race, one American Indian Alaska Native race, but an unspecified number of Asian and Pacific Islander subraces. And what happens if you are more than one? In 2010? Um, 2010, they did have... Wait, let me go back here. They said you can fill in notes. You, there the was a space. There was a space for you to write notes. Okay. If you didn't fit in. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I mean, if you were Asian, then you were fine. <laughs> yeah, then you were fine. That's what I mean. See, looking back, and I wasn't going to mention this till earlier, but I remember writing, filling in these forms for stuff like university, and I'd have to write in the notes because I don't... I'm not able to tick the, any of those boxes. Um, yeah, yeah, you mentioned that in episode one, and it was like, your issue was that you didn't have a box. Yeah. But th- that's just sitting on top of a way larger issue that all of these boxes keep shifting anyway, yes. changing anyway over time. I was going to say that that one thing that you brought up, though, in that discussion is that the the categories don't work to describe biological bodies, but they do work in just the ways that you outlined based on how much Indian you are, how much white you are, and whether or not you look white or whether or not you look Indian, what other people think about you. They do impact how you are treated. Mm. And this is where race becomes real. So it isn't real to start with, but it becomes real because it determines how people treat you in society and how people treat you in society actually affects your entire experience in the world and it becomes what we say, we what we call embodied because it influences how your body interacts with the world in myriad myriad ways. Yeah, I'm so glad that you wow. um you pointed that out because it, it is very real in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm gonna read another quote from the book here, just off of that. Race is not imaginary. Race is very real as a political grouping of human beings and has actual consequences for people's health, wealth, social status, reputation, and opportunities in life. The fact that dividing people into races has biological effects does not change the fact that this division is a political exercise. Yeah, it's it's really so there's one thing, there's the there's the biological layer, your genetic makeup. Then there's how you physically look and how people perceive how you look and that is a 
can be a really wide range for certain people. And depending on the, 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 the numbers, if 80% of people perceive you a certain way, that's how you're going to be treated in society. And that's going to affect your potential like opportunities in life, your income, your, and even your health, I've been learning, which is insane to me. We saw this happen during COVID when black and brown people had much poorer outcomes as a result of contracting, what is it, SARS-CoV-2? Mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-2. And, the, and this is a, a huge problem, actually, in medicine, in racialized medicine, it's called, because the, the, the misconception is that the reason that people have disparate health outcomes is because they are biologically different to start with. But the way that race works is that it doesn't describe your biological variation at the start of your life. It can describe important biological things later in your life because you have lived a life that you, where you are embodied in a particular race and you are treated a particular way in society. And experiencing racism basically does things like chronically activate your sort of stress physiology and when you have chronically reactivated stress physiology it's it's bad for you it causes all sorts of health problems so the 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 negative health impacts that we see this is true of like rates of heart disease it's true of rates of cancer in minoritized populations in the u.s are not because those minoritized populations started out with higher uh risk factors for any of these diseases they acquire higher risk factors for those diseases by living in a racialized body mm-hmm. in a place where their race is not as privileged as other races. And there is some evidence from immigrants that suggests that that kind of thing happens here where we pay really close attention to skin color as a race. But if those people were growing up where they came from, where skin color is not the thing that differentiates them from other people, they wouldn't acquire those negative health impacts. They wouldn't, they wouldn't experience those negative impacts because they wouldn't acquire physiologies that make them at more risk to those negative outcomes. And obviously I'm not an expert in this, but my experience is that the pharmaceutical industry is pushing a completely different narrative. It's saying... If you're Asian or if you're black, then you are more likely statistically to have, let's say, heart disease or, or something like this mm-hmm. and or die at a, at, a, at a certain age. They're flipping it. Yeah. Even getting pregnant and giving birth, there was a lot of things like, you know, if you're black, this might happen. Yes. And you can look at the data. The data are the same, right? So it is true that black women have... Um, much worse pregnancy outcomes than white women in the States. That's true. The cause of that is racism yeah, and experiencing racism. But you're right. The medical community in general is another community who is a little late to the party on this topic. <laughs> and the medical community, not entirely, but as a general rule, flips that causality and sort of implies, if, if not outright thinks, that that biological variation underlies from the get-go those outcomes. Yeah, that it's something in your genes. Mm-hmm. Okay. God, this wow. is such a huge topic, isn't it? Okay, so the current census questions are, 
uh, sorry, the categories are white, black or African-American, American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian, Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. I'm not sure what you do if you are more than one. I th- I think you can check more than one box oh, at yeah. this point. Yeah, I think that so was you... that was like um quite a big thing that happened recently that you can check more than one box. I was reading. I'm going to check all the boxes next <laughs> time. <laughs> So we are making progress. We can see here on the census.gov website page, there is a section called What is Race? And it says, The racial categories included in the census questionnaire generally reflect a social definition of race recognized in this country and not an attempt to define race biologically, anthropologically, or genetically. In addition, it is recognized that the categories of the race item include racial and national origin, or sociocultural groups. People may choose to report more than one race to indicate their racial mixture, such as American Indian and white. They also say why the census is important. Yeah. Information on race is required for many federal programs and is critical in making policy decisions, particularly for civil rights. States use race data to meet legislative redistricting principles. Race data also are used to assess equal employment practices, equal access to healthcare, and racial disparities in environmental risks. In commercial and research settings, race and ethnicity data can be useful for developing business plans, understanding disparities in housing, employment, income and poverty, completing grant applications and more. So, Stephanie, on that note, what box do you tick when you're filling out your census form? I check uh, white and Asian. Asian, you say? (laughs) (laughs) I do. I do say that. So tell us a little bit about your background. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, my grandma is a short, if we're thinking about short, tall, medium, she's definitely short, (laughs) Taiwanese woman who came to the U.S., I don't remember what year, sometime in the 60s, I think, because my dad was eight when he immigrated to the U.S. from Taiwan. And my mom is white, whitey, white, white, as white as you can possibly get. <laughs> I think I think ultimately those white people come from Scotland, but they've oh. been in the U.S. for a very, very long time. Okay. They're like, you know, it hurts your eyes to look at them in the sun, white. <laughs> They're white. And so what was growing up like for you? Did you ever struggle with your identity um, because of, you know, maybe growing up between two cultures? Was there anything like that for you? Or just just tell us about your experience. Uh, we pretended that we were white, fully, full stop. We didn't, we didn't engage with the Asian side of our family culture at all. I don't, my dad doesn't speak Cantonese anymore. He, he didn't when I was a child. I don't think I found out his original name until I was like 12 or 13 or something like that. So we didn't, we just, we just acted like generic conservative Christian white people. Mm-hmm. So, so they changed his, he changed his name or his parents changed his name? I don't know whether there was a conversation had about that, but his name was changed. Wow. From Tsung Ming to 
Stephen Thomas. So we just, we had like, um, we ate dumplings for Thanksgiving if we went to the Taiwanese grandma's house for Thanksgiving or Christmas. We had dumplings, steamed dumplings, and we always had dried squid in the cabinet, and we, and my dad ate those terrible, gross pickled radishes that smell really bad. Oh, I love them. Oh, you they do? smell yeah. so bad. But otherwise, that was it. That, that was the full extent of our Asian-ness. Dumplings, dried squid, pickled radishes. What, what was that like for you? Did you wonder about, you know, that side of you at all? I didn't until I went to China for the first time. And when I went there on a choir trip in college with mostly a bunch of white people, and I landed in the airport in Shanghai in the middle of winter when all Chinese people are quite pale because they haven't seen the sun in quite some time, I recognized that I looked a little bit similar to the people who were speaking a language that I did not understand in ways that were very much like the ways in which I look like my father. So it was, it was startling to me to realize, oh, wait a minute, some of my people are from here. <laughs> and then that was actually really fun to sort of experience China from that perspective, from the perspective of thinking, oh, I actually like have family that comes from this population. And the history of China is so much longer than the history of, well, U.S., like white Americans. Yeah, uh, It was kind of cool to at least be able to think about historical root like deep historical roots because I don't really think about that as mm. a white American I don't think about deep historical roots did oh, you wow. feel that you behaved differently no no because I'll tell you when I go to Japan I definitely behave differently <laughs> mm. yeah it just comes out of me hmm. the the Japanese side I mean, that's a whole other episode, but yeah. But no, it's, it's amazing listening to, you know, your um, recounting of, of Japan and how you are there and learning th about the culture through you. Yeah, but, well, yeah we'll have to talk well, about that That's another more. episode. <laughs> um, you told me a story a while ago about an incident you had where someone accused you. Well, I'll let you tell it. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I interrupted somebody in a meeting and that made them upset and they accused me of asserting white privilege. It, to be fair, it was the first time I'd ever interrupted them. So they, they were overreacting a little bit, but they accused me of asserting white privilege. And that person was Asian, was, was Asian. Yeah. <sighs> and I remember when Stephanie, first of all, like Stephanie, to me, you are the most non-racist person I've ever met like you're so accepting of everyone and I laughed out loud when you told me this but what's interesting is when you recounted the story again recently that I said well she doesn't even know you're you're actually Asian just like her I mean but you were saying that it doesn't matter if you're Asian or not if people perceive you to be white then yes you do you you did grow up with white privilege. Yeah, I don't I don't know about the growing up part, but certainly every day in my everyday life most people think I'm white, so presumably they treat me like I'm white. And that makes for white privilege. That's what it is. Mm. 
What about you, Amy? I was just thinking, I, I guess different people with their different minds have a different perception of what you are. And I feel like, yeah, um, so I, I, I recently did a film in India about a mixed race, like Indian white girl who goes to a, a small village in India because her dad is from there and she's there on her personal journey. But in doing so, she meets these kids from the village who are really into um, skating and um, skateboarding. She decides she wants to build them a skateboarding bowl. And some of the press who watched it said to the director that my character was very much coming from a white privilege background. And I felt hurt and annoyed by that because I am half Indian. I've spent a lot of time in India. I speak Hindi. Um, you know, so I just, I guess I'm just intrigued, like what you would say about that. Well, I don't know about your character. I can't mm. really speak to that. <laughs> yeah, of course. But yeah, I, if you if you are treated as a white person, you are getting some privileges that other people who were never treated as white people don't get. Mm -hmm. So I didn't ever, when you talked about checking the boxes in college, I didn't ever check the Asian box okay. back then because... I understood that that box was supposed to be to help out people who had basically been mistreated based on their race, and I didn't think that I had. So I deliberately, even though I knew I was part Asian and could legally check the box, I didn't check the box. And I still don't check the box on things where it, the the intention of the box is to, you know, try to make sure that we hire enough, you know, people from mm -hmm. diverse backgrounds yeah. because I don't think my Asian-ness counts in, in that arena or toward that end. My queerness does. Mm -hmm. I certainly get tr treated as a queer people where queer person, wherever I go, but my Asian-ness, I don't really think very much impacts the way that people interact with me out mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah. I, I really respect that. And I think it's very um, self-aware of you. I know. I was like, <laughs> wow, definitely not that woke when I was filling out. Well, I mean, that's actually what the woke kids do these days. They they don't, they're like, they're like I'm not checking the boxes. That's what my students say. When my students yeah. who come in to my classes, already knowing from their high school education that race is a social construct, I do this activity at the beginning of this the lecture on this topic where I ask them to tell me what the races are. Because if you just... If you just list them out, some of them are actually about language. Some of them are about ancestry. Some of them are about skin color. They're not, they're not even they're not even quantifying Constant. the same kind of characteristic, mm -hmm. and that's kind of the point of that activity. But some of my students will be like, "There are no races. I'm not <laughs> I'm not participating yes. in this." Yes. So I sometimes I have to like cajole them and and be like, "Okay, but play along because there's there's a point to this." Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the woke kids, they don't check the boxes. Oh, I'm going to do that from now on. <laughs> Categories. But it does, it does matter for a lot of things because it matters for how people treat you because yeah. all of the people that you were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, they think it's real. People treat it as if it's real. Yeah. And it does, it, it really matters. Like, it matters a lot for things like employment fairness, for housing. It, it yeah. matters across the board. So... We have to treat it like it's real because we treat it like it's real. Yes. But, so but also we, knowing that, that it's, not. it's not based on biology. Yeah. Yeah. But that it's been around for so long that it's become real. 
the impacts of it have become real. Do you have any other experience, something like Amy, where you were mislabeled? Oh, well, it depends on where I am. So if I'm in Arizona, and you, and often if I'm in Southern California, if people think I'm anything, they think I'm Hispanic <laughs> or, or Latina. And so sometimes they think I can speak Spanish. Like if somebody speaks to me in Spanish, I'll respond in Spanish if I'm able to. And mm. I don't really speak Spanish very well at all. And then they'll start speaking to me in Spanish. I'm like, no, that was it. Sorry. That's as, that's as far as this can go. I can't do any more than that. What about um, at work? I guess so, yeah. There was, this one, there was this one instance in which I was the idiot, actually. I was the one who was not understanding that how I was being perceived because I was invited by um, some people who were organizing a, an initiative to make more inclusive spaces for basically black and brown students in biological anthropology so that we don't lose them as they progress through their academic careers because they feel like there's not a space for them in biological anthropology because we have a, a race problem in, in anthropology. We are mostly white. And I was invited to participate in this, in this um, initiative as early in my career when I was a postdoc, they wanted me to be a sort of a mentor to, you know, show up and, and just be like, hello, here we are, we're, we're making a space for, for everyone, we want everybody to connect with each other and, and start to build a support network, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that they asked me because I had been heavily involved in queer-related sort of initiatives in the association. And I thought they were just sort of, you know, being inclusive and making sure that they also, you know, gave a nod to the the queer peeps. And also, because there may be some, you know, overlap there, there might be some intersectionality there. And I had sort of conceived of my position in this group, which was called the Ideas Scholars, the Increasing Diversity in, in the Evolutionary Anthropological Sciences. I'd been conceiving of my positionality there as like, I'm the mostly white person, but who's queer. So I'm also tagging along. And I thought about, I thought of myself that way for five or six years, I think. I thought that they, they invited me because I'm queer. I'm mostly white, but the reason there that I'm there is because I'm queer. And I was telling a story to one of the people who had originally invited me to be involved in this initiative about how for years and years and years and years and years in this association, I had been mixed up with this sort of other soft butch Asian lesbian named Emma Q. And to the degree that people would come running full throttle up to me and then stop about a meter away from me and look really disappointed and crestfallen. And they would say, (laughs) oh, you're not Emma Q. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. And I never was, not one time. Some of her, some of her um, committee members would sometimes confuse me at a distance with her, and, and they would later apologize to me and say, I'm so sorry I was waving at you like a maniac last night at the social event. I thought you were Emma Q. No big deal. I, I had a conversation with one primatologist who thought I was Emma Q for a full half hour of our conversation, and she kept asking me questions that made no sense for me and saying, like, well, you know, we have this conversation about this, and I was like, no, I don't think so. And then she asked me about my kid, and I don't have a kid. And it took me a while, but I finally figured out, oh, she thinks I'm Emma Q. So this has been a persistent issue. Emma Q is, like, definitely Asian. Like, there's no confusion there. 
And as I was telling the story, the person who had invited me to be involved in like the the black and brown club messaged me in a Zoom chat. And she said, see, Steph, not everybody thinks you're white, (laughs) (laughs) which was totally true. Like so many people clearly thought I was Asian because they were mistaking me for MQ all over the place. Mm. But I think that people think I'm white wherever I go. Yeah, different people have different perceptions yeah. of where you are. I Every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm Asian. I forget that I'm Asian. Hmm. You're looking yeah. at me. And also, it, <laughs> you're giving me that look. I'm surprised by that. I, yeah, I know. And it also blew my mind when you said to me that if you saw me in Little India, you would think I was a white person walking around. Yeah, I would. Yeah, you you looked Jesus. shocked. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I was. Um, I'm going to wrap this up with yeah. one small little story. When I was uh, a teenager, I was critically injured and um, I was in the emergency room and there was just a mob of people trying to get into the hospital. Um, and my mom was was trying to, to get in as well. My mom's Australian. And um, she overheard someone say, oh, man, I feel bad for the parents of that Asian girl. And my mom turned to him and she said, I'm the, I'm the mother of the Asian girl. And he was like, what are you doing out here? Your daughter's dying or something dramatic like that. And so he paved the way for her to get into the hospital and, and reach me. And um, she reached me and the, it was total chaos. It's, it's a story for another, another story for another podcast. But... Um, the doctors were like, we have to do surgery to con- reconstruct her face. I smashed my the left side of my face in. And um, he turned to my mom and he said to her, don't worry, we'll fix her eyes. <laughs> and my mom said, don't, no, don't fix her eyes. She's Asian. Her dad's Japanese. Keep them as they are. Oh, my God. But um, we always laugh back home, like, what would have happened if they had quote unquote fixed my eyes. <laughs> they might have gotten rid of your epicanthic fold. Exactly. Yes. And then you'd have to get it back again. <laughs> I'd have to get it back again. <laughs> so just to wrap up this podcast, we have another quote. No one is born hating another person because of the colour of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, then they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. Nelson Mandela. I love that quote, quotation. And it reminds me of um, some of the child development literature about the ways in which children preferentially pay attention to the things that they're exposed to. And they start to ignore the things that they are less often exposed to. And there was a paper out. I can't remember when now because I'm really bad at remembering authors and dates. But there was a paper out sometime relatively recently about how children who are raised in mixed race settings don't show preferences for any specific color of face. But children who are reared by single race people start to show a preference for looking at faces that are concordant with the races of the people that they are raised by. So they stop paying as much attention to other raced people and preferentially pay attention to same raced people. And 
one of the things that then can happen is that you start to feel, you know, all sorts of affiliation towards people who look like you or people who look like the people who raise you. Mm. Which is just a way that kids do things like that. It's just a way that they learn things. They figure out what is important to pay attention to and they pay preferential attention to those things. And then they learn a lot more about those things than they learn about other things. And when we are raised in less diverse environments, then we just, by our nature as social creatures, learn more and know more about the people who look like us than the people who don't. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. And it's fascinating to hear that about babies. And, you know, being a new mum and having a four-month-old, I feel like now knowing that even more so, I want to make sure that she is exposed to people from all diverse backgrounds. I mean, she will be anyway because half my family is Indian and it will happen by default. But just knowing that, um, yeah, I'm, I want to make the personal choice to, to make sure I do that. Mm. That's beautiful. I, hadn't, I didn't know about that. I just want to say just one other thing. It's really just lovely that a lot of the books that I've been showing Aurora, they're people from all different backgrounds, you know, and it's just... It just shows how, how much times have changed, that even cartoons and e even the first ever pictures that I showed her of this black and white book, because babies can only see in black and white for the first um, little bit of their lives, you know, there were people just from all these diverse backgrounds, and it just, I don't know, just made me feel really happy. Yeah, we can't start too soon. Um, why don't you come and say it? No, okay. Matthias had a question uh, hearing uh, Stephanie's story here. Uh, well, doesn't it come back back around to skin color? If that's what kids are learning? Yeah. Yeah, if that's the most salient cue yeah. to kids about the ways in which things look different. Maybe. I mean, it's not an unreasonable hypothesis. We would have to do more fine-grained experiments to see what things kids are queuing into with respect to faces but um yeah I mean skin color is going to be a big one it's one it's one that we all pay a lot of attention to and it's one that they can see just as well as we can so then I think what Matthias was sort of getting at is that this is a way if we treat these things and especially if we self-segregate in our interactions by mm. these things that are mainly about skin color then those are going to be the things that kids learn as socially relevant. Yeah, and potentially does that mean that people that were brought up mixed race, quote-unquote mixed race, are less likely to be racist? I would say that they're probably less likely to be racist about the races that they come from. Yeah, uh, yeah, go. yeah. I'm not sure I would go out on a limb any farther than that. but sure about their the races from which they come and on that note thank you so much stephanie that was thank you so insightful yeah thank you not emma q <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks that was a lot of fun yeah thank you for spreading this information you know not just in your work but even to your friends like me and now amy um we'll also put some um links to places where we've got quotes from if anyone is um interested to find out more 
Yeah, and if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Come follow us on our socials or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. We really would. And also, we'd so appreciate it if you can leave us a review and rate our podcast, um, ideally five stars and an epic review. But that's, of course, up to you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much again for listening. And thanks to Stephanie and to Matthias for being the sound man. Okay. I didn't know that was going to happen. All right. Bye. 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 This episode was produced by us, music by Matthias Kunzli.